Welcome to the Self Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Thanks, Lauren. And let's keep that slide up there because we're going to do it all together. Let's all say this. This is part of God's story. Lauren, that was a great reading. You may be seated. And Lauren, I was going to ask you, what, what version are you using there? I never would have, I never would have guessed that. My goodness, well, that's terrific. Um, you know, and, and as we get started, we're, we're going to be looking at Ruth chapter four, as you could probably guess since we just read Ruth chapter four. But I have to say something before we get rolling. Um, you know, if you noticed in that last song that all the slides went lickety split, and you're probably like my wife, leaning over to me and saying, "What is going on in the tech booth?" Um, I will tell you what was going on in the tech booth. I was sitting on the clicker. Oh, my goodness. It's an amazing thing, but I will catch on technologically here. <laughs> you know, I really do... Uh, I, I, I thank Alex for the opportunity to teach on uh, Ruth chapter 4. This is a terrific passage. And... Um, one of you came up to me before and said, oh, wow, you got the Kinsman Redeemer passage. Yeah, yeah, Kinsman Redeemer or Family Redeemer, whatever we want to call it. This is about being redeemed this morning. And, uh, and this story in Ruth, I've enjoyed it every week as we've gone through this book of Ruth. Uh, but this Sunday is also a very special Sunday for us in that it's Palm Sunday. It's Palm Sunday. And uh, I think of Jesus... You know, as he was uh, coming down on that donkey and the crowds were waving the palms and they said, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. Um, this is a joyful day for us as Christians. Yes, it is. But I also know that as Jesus was um, coming, rounding that corner and seeing Jerusalem, he was seeing in front of him the task that lay in front. Uh, he realized that soon he was going to have to be stepping into this um, aspect of redeeming his creation. And the price was going to be huge. So yes, it's a day of joy. It's also a day of reflection. And as we enter into this story of redemption here in, in Ruth chapter 4, I just want to encourage you to realize there's a reason why we need to be redeemed and it costs something great. Um, I was trying to think, okay, how do we illustrate redemption or redeem? You know, those of us in the church, we've grown up with that name. It's quite a, quite a theological expression. We always think of people being redeemed. Uh, it basically means, you know, to buy back, to repurchase, or, or to, to, to bring new life into a dead life. You know, redemption. Um, so I was trying to think of an illustration. I, I tell you, I went through a lot, and I found out most of them were false stories. Wouldn't you know that? Um, I don't know why it is we preachers make up stories to illustrate our points. But I looked in my own kitchen, and this is what I saw. Just a piece of furniture. We call it our kitchen cabinet. But to me, as I was getting ready for this week, I couldn't help but think, you know, that's a... It's quite a picture of redemption in that little cabinet. We keep our pots and pans and some dishes in there. 
years ago, in fact, over a century ago, a century and a couple decades, uh, it was a regular fixture in my grandfather's house. And he told me one of the functions of this cabinet in the beginning was to hold buckets of coal. And they would put buckets of coal in there, close the doors, and it looked nice. Then they'd open it, they'd take it over to the coal stove, dump it in. And that lasted that function for a while. And then they got new heating and new ways to, to, to uh, cook. And so uh, it no longer had to have coal buckets, so it became a, a jam cupboard. And they would put canned goods in there. Each time it would change uh, its purpose, kind of had a new coat of paint slapped on it. Um, it became a tool cupboard. And eventually, the last function was a paint cupboard. So you can imagine what this cupboard looked like. When my grandfather passed away, this cupboard was uh, basically on its way out. It was going to be thrown out. And my dad and my mom stepped in and said, you know, we'd like it. So they took it. And it sat in our garage for quite a while. And then unbeknownst to me, dad started refinishing it. And he began stripping one layer of paint off after another layer of paint. And he got down to that wood and he started sanding it and he started repairing the hinges. And then he gave it a finish. They gave it this beautiful cherry coating and, and then he gave it to us. And you know, this thing isn't worth, worth much, but it's priceless to me. It's priceless to me because this was the last piece of furniture my dad ever was able to repair. Alzheimer's took over, and he just wasn't able to do it after that. I look at this crazy piece of furniture, and I'm so glad I'm married to a woman who said, you can put it in a place of honor in our house. And we have it right there in the kitchen, functioning in a new way. It was supposed to be thrown out on the trash. You know, the story we're going to look at this morning in Ruth chapter 4, where we left Ruth last week, was in kind of this, I, don't, I wouldn't say limbo, but it was this verse. Naomi said to her, just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. And if we look at some other translations of that, it, I think it's actually King James that says, just sit still, daughter. Let's see how this turns out. Now, this is Ruth. This is Ruth who was very proactive. This is Ruth who, who stepped into the situation. Um, she didn't let grass grow under her feet. This was the, the gal who, when uh, Naomi was coming back from Moab, um, destitute, alone, Ruth said, I'm going to stick with you. Uh, your God is going to be my God. Your people are going to be my people. I'm going to establish a name where you go. I will never leave you. This is Ruth, who, um, as they were there, and she realized we're getting hungry. She said to her, Naomi, Naomi, I'm going to go out and I'm going to find us some food. I'm going to glean. And she was from Moab, from a whole different country. She didn't know all the, the rules and regs of this culture. But she went and she gleaned. And, you know, wouldn't you know it? She was directed to go to one of her closest cousins' field. And he protected her. And Naomi was thrilled. This is Ruth who worked through the barley harvest, through the wheat harvest, through the second barley harvest. And when you kind of figure all those things out, that's like five to six months. 
that she's putting her back into things and she's providing for Naomi, she's providing for herself. This is Ruth who took things under her wing and this was Ruth who followed her mother-in-law's advice and like Alex handled so well last week, got all showered up, went over there on her best duds and at night when all the guys on the threshing floor were sound asleep, she crept over there where, where Boaz was and she knelt by his feet and she laid there and when he woke up and wondered who this was at his feet, she said, hey, this is, I'm Ruth. I'm Ruth, your servant. Please cover me. You're my family redeemer. And when she said those words, she was putting herself out, of, out on the line. And we're going to learn a little bit more about what her request really meant as she asked Boaz these words. But let me show you why she has to just sit still and be patient right now. And that's because Boaz says to her, oh, it's true that I'm one of your family redeemers, but there's also another man who is more closely related to you than I am. So let me try to take care of this. And so Ruth, who has been following through on everything to this point, has to sit still and wait. So we're going to take a little detour now because... I just, this is why I get kind of geeky. Kind of like Aaron gets a lot of geekiness when he preaches. I, I kind of enjoy some of these things about the law of God and how God, way back in the very beginning, he inserted things, teaching his people how to live so that they could really take care of each other. It's back in Leviticus chapter 25. And I don't want you to turn to this. I'm going to be popping up a lot of verses. You can look at it this afternoon or this week sometime. Leviticus 25 is a fascinating chapter. In fact, I was almost going to say it's one of the most amazing chapters in Scripture. But then I realized, you know, there's a lot of amazing chapters in Scripture. So I think I'm safe to say it's one of the most amazing chapters in Leviticus. <laughs> Leviticus is a tough read. But, boy, you get to this chapter. And you have the year of Jubilee, but it starts with something else. So let me give you a little bit of background. It talks about something called the Sabbath year. Now, you know, the Sabbath day is the seventh day of the week, and we're to rest. And, and God commanded us to do that, to rest, to replenish our bodies. Well, he also commanded that for his creation. He said there's a Sabbath year. So, so the seventh year, the Israelites were not supposed to plant anything. They were supposed to let their land rest and regenerate and re-energize. And then he had this thing called the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee was a Sabbath of Sabbath years. Now, let me just stop back and do the math. That's seven times seven years. That's 49 years. The next year, the 50th year, was this year of Jubilee. Okay, what was the purpose of the year of Jubilee? Let's read this here. Set this year apart as holy, a time to proclaim freedom throughout the land for all who live there. It will be a jubilee year for you when each of you may return to the land that belonged to your ancestors and return to your own clan. And we may read that today and say, oh, okay, it's a time to have a reunion. Go back home, see the family, say hi to my ancestors who might still be living there, and, and we're supposed to honor them in that way. But He's saying something much, much deeper than that. It's not going back just to visit. It's going back to repossess the land that your ancestors owned. And I've sat there puzzling, trying to say, <clears throat> I wonder how we'd do that today. <laughs> this is a foreign thing to me. 
Um, I was doing the math. Okay, this is supposed to be every 50 years we're supposed to do that. Um, we bought our house in, in 1999. I think it was built in about 1986. So what if in about, what, 14 years? Uh, 2036, I get a knock on the door. And I open the door and the person says, Hi, I'm the fellow who built this house and I've come back to take it. <laughs> I'd have a hard time. There's a principle underlying this year of Jubilee. And it's found in the, in, in the next verse. The land must never be sold on a permanent basis, for the land belongs to me. That's God speaking. This is my land. You're only foreigners and tenant farmers working for me. For every purchase of land, you must grant the seller the right to buy it back. And I had to ask myself the question, man, I wonder what this would do to inflation. I wonder what it would be like for all of you who are so desirous to buy a house of your own. And here you are in Denver, Colorado, where it's so expensive. Well, there's a principle, okay? Every, five, every 50 years, the, the land reverts to the person who owned it first. So in essence, the people had to realize, it's not the land that I'm possessing, it's the harvests that that land makes that I'm possessing. So you have to do the math. And you know what? Frankly, the Bible does the math for us. Um, <clears throat> when you make an agreement with your neighbor to buy or sell property, you must not take advantage of each other. The seller must set the price by taking into account the number of years remaining until the next year of Jubilee. The more years until the next Jubilee, the higher the price. The fewer years, the lower the price. After all, the person selling the land is actually selling you a certain number of harvests. And I love what he adds. Show your fear of God by not taking advantage of each other. I am the Lord, your God. Built right into the law is this economic principle and a way that God protects his people. <clears throat> Boy, I wonder what it would be like if we put that into practice. And frankly, I don't know how we would. And also, frankly, I'm not sure that the Israelites did. We don't have a lot of indication that they did. But I think, what a great thing that God would slide in there. And then you come to that question, okay, so that's for people who are selling the land. Um, what about a person who loses it? Okay. If one of your fellow Israelites falls into poverty and is forced to sell some family land, then a close relative should buy it back for him. A close relative. And this is where we get into looking at some different translations. And, you know, if you're new to Christianity, I apologize because we, we throw out all these translations. You heard me ask uh, Lauren, what was the translation you were reading? Well, you know, this book is so important to us, this Bible. We believe this is God's word to us. And it's fascinating. Generation after generation has tried to translate it. They get new manuscripts. New, new things are found and they try to get closer and closer to what it originally might have meant. So that's why things might differ in different translations. I use something called the, the New Living Translation. And it just helps it flow for me. I didn't realize the NIV was so flowy. But it's switch, switch, switch. Anyway, in the, uh, in the English Standard Version. Oops, excuse me. In the English Standard Version, it read interprets this a close relative as his nearest redeemer. 
So it takes that word close relative and it, and it brings it as nearest redeemer or I would say family redeemer or as you heard me say earlier, kinsman redeemer. Okay, hey, the price that the kinsman has to pay is the same thing as we saw before. Um, the price of the land will be discounted according to the number of years until the next year of Jubilee. So this person who is a family redeemer One of the things he can do is buy back or redeem your land that maybe you've lost or for some reason you've had to sell. But that's not the only thing that the family redeemer can do or was even asked to do. He was also asked to buy back your freedom. To buy back your freedom. Um, If for some reason you as an Israelite lost your freedom. Um, there's a principle behind this too, and I love this. Again, it's, it's so much fun getting into the Bible. I would encourage you to read Leviticus 25. I'm not sure about Leviticus, but 25. Um, if one of your fellow Israelites falls into poverty and cannot support himself, support him as you would a foreigner or a temporary resident and allow him to live with you. Don't charge interest or make a profit at his expense. Instead, show your fear of God by letting him live with you as your relative. Can you imagine if we did that? Now, I I love the fact that we have a benevolence fund. I love the fact that we try to take seriously when one of our own body gets into trouble and we try to help. He's asking us to go the second mile. And he put it right in his law. And he invites the kinsman redeemer, the family redeemer, to open up his home and allow him to come in. Same thing, um, you may ask then, okay, if all the Israelites were not supposed to be made slaves, how would someone get into a problem where their freedom had to be bought back? Well, it goes on. Suppose a foreigner or a temporary resident becomes rich while living among you. If any of your fellow Israelites fall into poverty and are forced to sell themselves to such a foreigner or a member of his family, they still retain the right to be bought back. Even after they have been purchased, they may be bought back by a brother, an uncle, or a cousin. In fact, anyone from the extended family may buy them back. And the principle of how you buy them back is the same thing as the year of Jubilee. Um, They will negotiate the price of their freedom with the person who bought them. The price will be based on the number of years from the time they were sold until the next year of Jubilee. Whatever it would cost to hire a worker for that period of time. Again, I love how God thinks of all these details. Mm. Anyway, anyway, um, we go to see that the family redeemer can buy back land. The family redeemer can buy back your freedom. There's also another one that's in numbers. I'm not going to touch on it much today, but the family redeemer can avenge justice for you. Um, that'd be a tough one for me to do. But it's one that is called. If, if someone is wronged, you can go and make things right. Um, But there's a fourth one. Provide an heir for you. And this is one where you're saying, okay, what's going on here? Um, And basically what it's saying, if uh, an individual is married, has no children, and he dies, the family redeemer is called to marry that lady to have a child by them so that the name can be carried on. Um, I say married, but basically, I kind of mean acquire, which is unfortunate women, but that's the way it was looked at back in that day. 
the family redeemer would come and do his responsibility by acquiring this woman and providing protection for her. Um, The first son that bears to him will be considered the son of the dead brother so that the name will not be forgotten in Israel. So I want to look at these three incidents of this uh, kinsman redeemer. You can buy back the land. You can buy back the freedom. You can provide an heir for the person. And that's what this family redeemer was called to do. When we look at that, we begin to realize, okay, there's got to be some characteristics of this person who is the closest relative. Okay. The one thing is, they got to be the closest relative. (laughs) they got to be that nearest relative. But not just that. They have to be the nearest relative who's also willing to do it. Willing to step in and help in this situation. And they not only have to be the nearest relative who's willing, but the nearest relative who's willing and has the ability to be able to redeem. All of those things. When Ruth went onto that threshing floor and laid at the feet of Boaz and said to him, cover me, cover me as my family redeemer. She was asking a big thing of Boaz. She was saying, Boaz, would you buy the land that belonged to my father-in-law? Boaz, would you also buy my freedom? I'm a foreigner in this country. Would you take me into your house? And Boaz, would you help me provide an heir for the family of Elimelech? Wow. And now she, she has to sit silent and wait. Um, and we're going to go on now into uh, the passage in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, um, going to have some some big passage to read here about how Boaz steps into this whole situation to perform this aspect of being a family redeemer. So let me just read this, and we'll kind of stop to make a few comments as we go. Boaz went into the town gate. He took a seat there. Uh, This was the next morning, and he goes to where business was oftentimes contracted around Bethlehem at their their gate. Um, Just then, the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. Um, so Boaz called out to him and said, come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Now, let me just stop there. Uh, one of the things that jumped out at me was that word, just then. Just then. Um, some other translations say, behold, the family redeemer just popped in on the shore. It's so easy to look at that and say, wow, what a coincidence. I don't think it was a coincidence at all. Because I see God's providence through this every step of the way. How amazing that Ruth would go to a field she had no idea whose it was and it turned out to be her cousin. How amazing that he would reach out and care for her. Each step of the way there's the providence and I believe how amazing that this guy who is a closer relative shows up just then as Boaz is waiting. Um, Anyway, then Boaz called 10 leaders from the town and he asked them to sit as a witness. Uh, That thing, 10 leaders, you know, all I can say is there's no place in Scripture that says you've got to have 10 people in order to do business. But it is interesting, later on in the history of the Jewish people, when they had a synagogue, in order to, do, to have a quorum, you had to have 10 people to do business. And so here's Boaz, who knows that business has to be done, so he calls 10 leaders of Bethlehem to sit down to listen to what he has to propose. 
to this family redeemer. And he goes on to say, and Boaz said to the family redeemer, you know Naomi who came back from Moab. She's selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I'm next in line to redeem it after you. Um, Naomi is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now we went through all those scriptures there in Leviticus 25, all those verses about this kinsman redeemer or this family redeemer. And it sounds like Naomi still owns the land. And maybe you can look at it a couple different ways. Maybe Elimelech, when he realized that there was a famine, he had to move his family over to Moab to provide for them. They just left, left their land, and he anticipated he'd be back in a year or two. Well, it's been over 10 years. It'd be interesting to know if that land just lay empty for 10 years. I'm not sure. Or it could be that Elimelech, as he was anticipating going to Moab, went to someone and sold his land, realizing that when I go to Moab, I can make some money, come back and repurchase the land with the whole year of Jubilee thing that we just read. And I believe very much that Naomi has that right of purchase. And Naomi, through Ruth, has approached Boaz to ask him that big favor, would you take my right and purchase your cousin's land? And I'll let you have it. So Boaz, being the righteous man he is, goes to the nearest relative and lays it out for him. And this relative, I can just imagine what he's thinking. Wow, I could increase my land. It's a pretty good price because it's not a full 50 years I have to pay for. And he says, all right, I'll redeem it. And I can just imagine if Ruth were sitting there, kind of getting caught in her breath, going, wait a minute, that's not the way this is supposed to go. I asked Boaz. Well, Boaz continues. Boaz, uh, Boaz told him, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. And I'd just like to point out, as we've been looking at this whole thing about a family redeemer, it all sounds good and nice and wonderful and the, the right thing to do, and yet we don't realize it was also a very costly thing to do. There was no guarantee that when this person bought the land that they would possess it. They were supposed to buy the land for the person who lost it. And when, when Boaz is being asked to provide an heir, he's realizing that this inheritance that he's been working on is now going to be shared. And that's just what this other fellow, this nearer cousin, realizes. And so he backs out. And he basically says, Boaz, I can't do it. I can't jeopardize my estate. If that's what I have to do, if I have to acquire this Moabite woman as my wife, no way. My wife would not put up with that. So he backs out of the deal. And we read in the passage of Scripture, there's some legalities that are taking place. Like It, it seems like he takes off his shoe and he hands it to Boaz in, in, in front of all these ten witnesses. And they all realize that he is handing over his responsibility to Boaz. 
by doing that. And then Boaz, in front of all the people, the witnesses says, now you're a witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Melon. And with the land, I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Melon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses of that today. Boaz steps in as then the nearest relative who was willing to intervene and to get involved and had the ability to be able to do it. And those three aspects are so important. He's the nearest, he's the most willing, and he has the ability to be able to do it. And then, you know, we see the rest of the chapter. Kind of unfolds like a Disney movie. You know, all of a sudden... They're, they're married. The, the town is praising them. They get married. Uh, they have a child named Obed. Um, and, and Naomi. Naomi is praised and she holds Obed, her grandson. Everything seems right. And it would be great if, yeah, everything could have ended there. But the way it ends is interesting because it ends with a genealogical record. It ends with this, that Lauren did such a great job in reading, as far as all these names. The genealogical record of their ancestor, Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, King David. And we begin to catch on whoever is writing this story is looking back. Maybe he's alive during the time of King David. Maybe he's just alive during the time of, of the kings in Israel. But he's, he's looking back and he's realizing the pivotal point that this, that this situation played when Boaz was willing to be the kinsman redeemer for Ruth and they united together and it continued this genealogical line that went down to David. King David that many people looked as a, as a redeemer for Israel as one who was able to establish a strong kingdom for the Israelite people. He stops there. But the story doesn't stop there. Because the story continues hundreds of years later when Matthew, in his biography of Jesus, takes this very same section of, of, of names and puts them into the genealogy that he's putting together, starting from Abraham and going all the way to Jesus Christ. And you'll see those names with him. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. And then it goes, I think it's like 32 generations. 32 generations until it comes to Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And I want to present to you today, just in closing, yeah, that was the whole purpose of Ruth being written. Now, I doubt that the person who wrote Ruth really understood that. But he thought, how important to show that Ruth and Boaz came together and that protected the line going to King David. But how amazing that Matthew and the other apostles saw how important Ruth and Boaz were to come together and go all the way to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And that brings us right back to where we started where the crowds today on Palm Sunday are saying, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, praise in heaven and glory in highest heaven. 
And Jesus is coming down that hill toward the Mount of Olives. And a little bit later in Luke's gospel, Luke records these words. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and he saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way of peace. And I pictured Jesus as he's coming around on that donkey and it probably even looked a little odd. And, and the people around are waving palm branches saying, Hosanna. And Jesus breaks down and weeps and says, if only you knew the way of peace today. And I believe when he wept. Yeah, I believe he saw other things. I believe he saw a time in a garden at the beginning of creation when he and the Godhead walked with his created ones. I believe he, he remembered how, how wonderful it was to walk with Adam and Eve who, who actually put his image into them and had so many hopes and desires for them. And he walked, and I think he remembered that time when they were tempted and they succumbed and they chose a different way. They chose to take his place rather than to accept his offerings to them. And, and I have a feeling Jesus might even have remembered when he had to kill one of his other creations to be able to cover those two of their shame and their guilt and their fear. And I believe as he looked at generations since then, he saw the same thing happening year after year. Where some of these other creations, these animals who had no idea what was going on, had to be sacrificed to be able to cover the choice, the guilt, the fear, the shame. And I believe as he looked over Jerusalem, he saw that whole path of history that brought him to this point to realize he was going to step in to be that family redeemer for us. He's the, mo he's the nearest relative to us. He was most willing to do it. And he had the ability to do it too. I just, I just want to read just some verses. Um, I'm not going to flash these up. I'll, I'll put it up at the end and if you want to know what the, uh, what the addresses of these verses are. But let me just share some verses why I believe that Jesus is our family redeemer. Yeah, he's the nearest relative. Listen to this. He, he's our creator. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. That's Jesus Christ who created us just as a father and mother would come together. He created us. He became human. He entered into his creation. He entered into our skin. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. He was born as a human being. Finally, he became our brother. He became our brother. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That's why Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. He stepped into that role of being the nearest relative to us. He was also willing. He was also willing to step into it. Um, he paid the redemption price voluntarily. Now, this is from John chapter 10 where he's talking about the good shepherd. And he identifies himself as that. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. No one 
can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. I have the authority to lay down my life when I want to, and also I have the authority to take it back up. And I almost hear him saying, I'm not going to do it until it's done. And he came for this very purpose. In Mark chapter 10, it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the reason he came. You know, there was another one. I meet with a bunch of guys on Friday, and on Friday we were going through Matthew 26. And we came to that verse in the Garden of Gethsemane, where one of his disciples had chopped off the ear of a high priest's servant. And Jesus healed it, and then he said, put your swords away. Have we come to be revolutionaries? No. Listen, I want you to know, if I wanted to get out of this, I could call thousands and thousands of angels right now to come and deliver us. But that's not what I've come to do. And so he willingly endured the cost of redemption that had to be made. And then, finally, he is more than able to redeem us. He has the ability to redeem us. He paid with his own blood. Remember how we said he had to, he had to kill one of those animals to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. And year after year after year, an animal was sacrificed to cover the shame of us. And Jesus came with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. But it wasn't just his blood. He also paid through his generous grace. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. I say to you today, just as Boaz was a redeemer for Ruth and brought meaning and purpose and future into her life and brought covering to protect her and provided the land for her, Jesus, our redeemer, has opened up the way that we can come back into the purpose that God had for us way back in the garden originally. But redemption is a big cost. I'm going to ask... Aaron and the team to come up. And I just want to throw out two pictures for you just in closing. Um, I was reading about a, a translator who was working on the Bible. And he was doing this for a language in, in Mali, West Africa. It was called Bambaro, the Bambaro language. And he came to this concept of redemption. And he asked his translator, what's the word that means this redemption, and he explained what redemption was, and, and the fellow all of a sudden, he just spilled off a, a word, and so the translator wrote down that word, and he said, what, what does that really mean? And the translator said, well, it means he took our heads out, and, and this Bible translator goes, he took our heads out, now wait a minute, and he explained what redemption was again to him, and the translator said, yes, yeah, it means he took our heads out. And he said, can you explain to me the story of that word? He said, certainly. Generation after generation has been told this story in our country, in our culture, of how the slave traders would come. And they would go inland into our country. And in order to do that, they had to pass through all kinds of different tribes and different cities. And they were given permission to go on one condition, that when they returned, they would have to stop at that tribe so that the chief could take a look and see who it was. And he said, 
When they would go to the tribe that they were going to capture, they would capture them and they would shackle them. They would chain them person to person to person and they would put a neck collar around them. And they would march them back to the sea where they were going to be put on boats. But as they came to each village, the chief would come out. And if he saw somebody he recognized or someone that he knew or someone that he liked, he would say, take his head out of the chain. And he would give the slave traders money that they would recognize as currency. And he would buy their freedom. That's what redemption has done for us. It's taken our head out of that chain that has enslaved us to shame, to fear, to guilt, to everything that God never wanted us as his creation to have to go through. Jesus is our family redeemer. As we enter this week of Holy Week, oh, I look forward to Easter. I do. But before every resurrection, there has to be a death. And we're going to go day by day by day by day until we come to Good Friday. I think of how Ruth spent that night at the feet of her family redeemer. I invite you to spend time at the foot of Jesus. Think about the cost that redemption was for you. But as you do, think with joy that he is our redeemer and he has freed us, but it cost. Let's close with this song. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South family. Have a great rest of your day.